Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, it's heart of the matter. Uh, we have some special guests in studio tonight, Callie and Russ, who uh, are great supporters of the show. We welcome them here. A few weeks ago, I uh, took some time to thank everybody who uh, contributes to the show, does things voluntarily uh, to help Heart of the Matter get out there. I really appreciate it. But I neglected to mention somebody who is very important to the show and our entire staff. Uh, I'd like to take a minute and uh, ask some of our crew to join me on the set in special recognition and appreciation of our very sick brother, Micah Coleman, and his mom who takes care of him, Becky. Micah has given so much to the station by way of his time and his heart and his expertise. Much that uh, happens by way of graphics and the computers was all set up by Micah before the show began. The very day that the show began last year, March 6th, Micah was called into the hospital for a liver transplant. And uh, he has been waiting since that time for this liver. He is now in the advanced stages of uh, just horrible liver failure. And our prayers continue to be offered on your behalf, uh, my brother. And uh, we pray God's blessings upon you and your mother, Becky. We love you, Micah. All right, look at this. Look at these guys. Aren't they good looking? Dark leather. I didn't ask them to do that. They just automatically did. I'm just kidding. I set it all up just to bother you guys who don't like this. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for coming in. That's a great crew and staff who do so much to keep the show going. We have a very exciting show coming up next month. It's called Breakdown. It follows Heart of the Matter on Tuesday nights at, on the 6th at 9 p.m. And uh, whatever you do, to, tune in to Breakdown on Tuesday evening right after Heart of the Matter on March 6th at 9 p.m. Why? Because the show opener is supposed to be a controversial doozy. So uh, this is uh, generated by some very young at heart Christians who uh, have a lot of talent, and I look forward to seeing this first show. Looking for a place to get a little support for your walk? You want access to a group of people who are going through similar religious struggles and searchings as yourself? Maybe you have questions about your faith that nobody else is willing to answer? Truth, truth seekers may be the thing for you. If you're interested, you can go to www truthseekers 333 at AOL.com. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we need you tonight. We pray your blessings upon our audience, upon our crew and staff, uh, upon the technical stuff of the show. Help me uh, with uh, what I'm going to present, that I will have your spirit and I'll say what you want me to say and let me uh, just be able to answer calls the way you want them answered. In Jesus' name, amen. So we continue on with an examination of LDS church history. We left off with a summary of Joseph Smith Jr.'s early life. I have to admit I've been a little bit reluctant and had some difficulty with this week's topic for a couple of reasons. Uh, part of it is due to the fact that this is a difficult topic to fairly represent and with uh, real good accuracy. The other part that is difficult is I'm not certain that what I'm going to report on will be taken in the right way, not necessarily by the LDS, but by some people who are uh, in apologetics against Latter-day Saints. 
You're all aware that we have meetings where we go to people's homes and churches called Heart in the Home or Heart in the Church. And I've noticed as we've gone on more and more that it seems like the masses of people want to hear about the salacious things about Mormonism. They want to hear about uh, the temple rites and they want to hear about uh, these things that uh, Joseph Smith did and, and polygamy. And uh, instead of hearing about why bringing the regenerative relationship with Jesus to Mormons is most important. And I suppose that it can be fairly entertaining when you focus on the salacious and the uh, outlandish events of an organization. It sells, for instance, more newspapers when the headline is something that's really out there versus just the traditional day-to-day stuff. But it's the day-to-day that's going to help bring Latter-day Saints to know the Lord. That is the purpose of our ministry and show. To compare LDS origins and history and doctrines with biblical Christianity and the purpose of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I understand that, uh, like the guy who authored the title of our show, Heart of the Matter, he also wrote a song that said, We Want Dirty Laundry. And we like dirty laundry because when we, when we watch it or we hear it, it makes us feel just a little bit better about our own faith and the, our own problems when we can see that someone else has got it a little worse. But the, we have to ask ourselves as we examine information like this, how am I going to use this information in reaching out to my LDS family and friends with the truth of Jesus? Am I going to use it as a bat to just crush them and show them how smart I am and how much I know about that? Or am I going to use it to help give some uh, dimension of light and dark to the whole picture of Mormonism and help show why it is what it is and why it doesn't necessarily translate to a real regenerative relationship with, uh, with Jesus in your life? Now, I am constantly uh, told that the reason I do this show is because I don't have a real relationship with Jesus and I have to spend my time attacking another religion because uh, I'm so weak in my own faith. And uh, I want you to know that my motives are to paint a correct picture. And that's why today's topic is a little bit different. As Christians, we can't be empty in our relationship to Jesus so that we become so enamored with these difficult things of Mormonism and make it, that help us feel superior when we read about them. You know, oh, I can't believe they believe things like this just because we're kind of weak in our own faith. It's really important that our faith is substantiated in Him and that way when we share, we're in the, we're in the right frame of mind. Our topic tonight is on the magic practices of the Smith family Uh, before, during, and after the first vision and the translation of the uh, gold plates into the Book of Mormon. The evidence and information on Joseph Smith Jr. uh, and his family being involved in folk magic is substantial. Um, If you take the time and want to read a book that you can uh, really gives you a lot of information, I've mentioned it before, look at D. Michael Quinn's book, um, early Mormonism and the Magic World View. You can either get that online, you can buy it at a bookstore, or you can go to websites like uh, www.utlm.org, Utah Lighthouse Ministries, and there's excerpts and analysis of the things that Quinn uh, brings up. And uh, if you do that, you're going to be blown away. I promise you, blown away by the preponderance, preponderance of information about the magic occultism, witchcraft, if you want to call it that, 
of Joseph Smith's early family, of Joseph Smith through his young life all the way up until about 1826-1827. We know that the church uh, came about in 1830, so that gives you um, kind of a time frame. But in my opinion, all this information, again, has to be properly understood if we're going to help bring um, people to the Lord. Now, I'm going to say some things that might sound a little different, but I just have to say it because this is what came to me as I prepared. I don't think the magic practices of the Smith family necessarily convict them of being frauds. I think that they are a piece of a puzzle. I think that they can be taken either way. There are far more important things, very substantial important things in Mormonism that prove that it is problematic and and fraudulent and deceptive. The fact that they dabbled in these things doesn't necess- isn't necessarily one of the big ones. So if you want to build a whole argument on the fact that, he, that Joseph Smith and his family got involved in this stuff, it's probably going to be a waste of your time. And let me give you a why, uh, some answers why. Um, in the c- cultural context of rural 19th century America, like in and around Palmyra, New York, where Joseph Smith and his family lived, magic practices and folklore rituals were very common. As mentioned, D. Michael Quinn wrote in Early uh, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, a very important factor in Palmyra's treasure digging of the 1820s is that the local newspaper endorsed it. Okay, What did the local and even the national newspapers say about magical practices, searching for treasure, money digging, scrying, and all these things. In an 1822 column titled Money Diggers, the local newspaper in Palmyra, speaking of money digging, reported, quote, much, however, depends on the skillful use of the genuine mineral rod, unquote. The paper then told of a Vermont man who, quote, after digging with unyielding confidence and unabating diligence for 10 or 12 years, found a sufficient quantity of money to build him a commodious home for his own convenience and fill it with comforts for weary travelers, unquote. The same paper reported that another Vermonter dug up treasures in the sum of $50,000. A Massachusetts magazine published an article on folk magic in 1833, which read, Quote, men of reputation and character whose intelligence would prevent a deception upon their own minds and whose known honesty forbids that suspicion of any attempt to lead them into error have used the art of discovering streams of water or veins of minerals beneath the surface of the earth by the mysterious properties of the hazel wand, unquote. Even a National Science Journal in 1826 reported on folk magic activities as though they were normative and ubiquitous in an area. Quinn quotes from uh, the same article, which was reprinted in a Vermont newspaper that said, We could name, if we pleased, at least 500 respectable men who do, in the simplicity of their hearts, verily believe that immense treasures lie concealed upon our green mountains many of whom have been for a number of years most industriously and perseveringly engaged in digging it up. Some of them have succeeded beyond their most sanguine expectations. So we have from the newspapers of Joseph Smith's time and his family, of people outside of religion, inside religion, all walks of life, uh, participating in these things. Remember, Joseph Smith and his father were hired by respected farmers and people who cultivated the land to come out to their property and use their techniques to find treasure. I think that speaks that it was a normative practice to occur at the time. 
Now, maybe if you examine your own life, you might see, even in this day and age, some connection to folklore, beliefs, and magical ideation. My dad and my younger brother and I, several years ago, decided we were going to try to raise berries. And we got about a two-acre plot of land in Hemet, California. And the first thing we wanted to do was dig a well. So my dad went to the local farmers and asked them if we could find somebody who would help us dig a well. And a guy came out, and uh, you know what he did? He got this this thing. He got these two, one in this hand, one in this hand. It looked like a Y upside down with the, the stick part down here. And he walked around for an hour on that land. And every time it started pointing down, he would say, dig here. And then he'd go to another place, he'd say, dig here. And we found water that way. Now, I watched him do it, and I thought it was the biggest con in the world. I was laughing my head off because I had read this stuff in church history. But still today, completely disconnected from Mormonism, this guy's out there finding water by doing this thing, you know. So we have strange practices uh, in, in our lives as people. We have some superstitions. Have you ever spilt salt on a table? Have you ever had someone say, quick, throw it over your shoulder, you know? That's a, have you ever stepped on a crack and thought of breaking your mother's back? Have you ever been on a ladder and had a black cat run across you? Or, or do you walk under ladders when they're open? All this stuff builds into folklore, traditional type stuff. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying try to look at it in the context. All right? The first week of my mission in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we were knocking on uh, doors and came to a member's house. And she opened the doors and she was completely frantic about something and my companion I was new and he what's wrong what's wrong and she said a bird hit my window today and died and my companion and I were what what does that mean and she said don't you know that means that someone in your family is going to die and I mean this was my first night out tracking really and we're and so we walk away my companion and I and we're laughing about her and her mystical beliefs and think all this stuff and uh, during that week in the morning uh, in the kitchen this is in my journal from that time Uh, I'm sitting there studying, and uh, a bird hits the window. It's early in the morning, a few days later, and I go out, and I see the birds laying there dead. And my mind thinks about this lady and this experience, and then I kind of laugh to myself. I get home that night. My mission president called. My grandpa died that day. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying that when things like that happen, it reinforces a belief that possibly it is true. And so people get involved in that kind of thing. Most people, if they have been in and around long enough, have been exposed to families and their folklorish, magical traditions. In rural America, even some of the best men and women were convinced that this was okay. Uh, It did not make them necessarily evil of the practices. It just showed that they were susceptible to the mystical beliefs of the day. Now that I've given all those justifications as to why not build a huge case against the Smiths for their use in practice, I'm going to share some things, documented things, that are going to help show that they were not just a typical Christian family when it came to these things. Um, Ask yourself, how do these magic practices and events contribute to the makeup of Mormonism And how do they contribute to the mindset and attitudes of Mormons today when it comes to knowledge like we talked about last week? Soon after moving into the township of Manchester in 1820, Joseph Smith Sr., his son Alvin, and Joseph Smith Jr. developed a preoccupation with treasure seeking. The two Joseph Smiths claimed to have the ability to locate treasure by virtue of divination and clairvoyance, being able to see it. 
present-day Mormonism often portrays Joseph Jr. as passively participating in some youthful treasure hunts as a teen. This is not an accurate description. With his father, the boy prophet was very involved in a number of very magical and mystical activities and became known very well in his community for his abilities. To quote Quinn, who Sandra Tanner said is the best scholar in in the Mormon church, that's a quote from her website, he said Joseph Smith participated extensively in magical pursuits. In 1822, a man named Peter Ingersoll, whose land bordered on the north of the Smith's property, was asked by Joseph Smith Sr., the prophet's father, to follow him and find buried treasure. So Joseph Smith's father goes over to Peter Ingersoll, a neighbor, and says, Come on with me, I want to show you how to find buried treasure. And supposedly they walked towards the Smith cabin where Joseph Smith said there was treasure buried there. Joseph Sr. took out a pocket knife and cut a forked rod like that guy did on our land, And he placed it in Ingersoll's hand and told Ingersoll to say, work toward the money, work toward the money. Apparently, Ingersoll did not have the gift, and at length, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. began to throw himself around in all kinds of fits as a way to encourage the rod to act. These actions did not convince Ingersoll of anything, and he quickly quit what they were doing. This caused the senior Smith to say, I saw it move in your hand. It moved in your hand. This is what the affidavit sworn by Ingersoll said. Moments later, when Ingersoll picked up a stone to throw at some birds, Joseph Jr.'s father declared that the stone he picked up was in fact a seer stone. He said, if you only knew the value that is there back at the back of my house. And then he suggested, then he suddenly pointed to the area and said, there, over there. Look, I see a chest of gold and a chest of silver beneath the ground. Ingersoll said that Joseph Smith Jr. then took the stone from him and placed it in his hat before walking over bent in the earth and sort of like a pigeon would walk. He pulled his face face out of the hat, looking exhausted and said in a faint voice, If you have seen what I have seen, you would believe. Later, Ingersoll was completely disgusted when Alvin Smith, Joseph's older brother, did the same exact thing with the seer stone and hat and trying to find this treasure for Ingersoll to see that they could do. Believing in what mystics claim to have seen is not only vital in treasure seeking, it is an important part of Mormonism today. You have to believe what your forefathers and what people above you are saying they see and know. It helped build into the fabric of the religion this idea of knowing and how to see and how to feel. It's a very mystical approach. In 1822, the Smiths had another set of neighbors who were equally involved in money digging. The Smiths and the Chases sought for money and buried treasure together. The Chases had a daughter named Sally who had prior to Joseph made quite a name for herself in the neighborhood by being able to look into this reflection of this stone and see where lost things were. And she was known around the community for her skill. Joseph Jr. was very intrigued with Sally. This is before he started his own practice of finding treasure. And he asked her if she could find treasure for him, in which she attempted. Soon, intrigue turned to imitation, and Joseph said, Can I look in your stone, and can I see if I can see anything? And she let him, and typical of a con outconning the con, what Joseph saw in the stone was not buried treasure. He saw another seer stone that would give him great powers of sight and vision. 
He said that the stone became luminous and dazzled his eyes and after a short time became as, quote, intense as the noonday sun. So while he's looking in Sally's stone, this is very young Joseph. He sees his own seer stone that's out there uh, buried somewhere. Those of you who've read in the Book of Mormon in Ether chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, know that there is a man named Ether, or actually the uh, brother of Jared. These primitive people in, built these barges to cross the sea, and they didn't have any way of lighting the barges. And so the brother of Jared said to God, touch these stones and make them light and that we can put them at both ends of the barge and they'll give us light as we cross the sea in them. This is a parallel straight from the history of Joseph Smith prior to the Book of Mormon plates even coming out of stones providing light to people so that they can see. In fact, the quote is in the Book of Mormon, For it came to pass after the Lord had prepared the stones with the brother of Jared had carried up to the mount, the brother of Jared came down from the mount and he did put forth the stones and the vessels which were prepared, one in each end thereof. And behold, they did give light unto the vessels. And thus the Lord caused stones to shine in darkness and to give light unto men, women, and children that they might not cross the great waters in the dark. Shining stones in dark hats. This was all part of the magical culture in which the Smiths were involved in. And again, we find that theme sprinkled through threads of the Book of Mormon. Sometime in the fall of 1822, Joseph and Alvin were hired by Willard Chase, Sally's brother, to dig a well. While in the hole, Willard found a special little stone. And he says, quote, it was shaped like a baby's shoe. It was about the size of a hen's egg and was dark brown. Willard recalled that as they examined it, quote, Joseph put it into a hat and then his face into the top of the hat. Chase did not report what Joseph said he saw, but did report that Joseph asked if he could keep the stone the following day. Chase declined to give it, but agreed to loan it to Joseph, and Joseph kept it for the next two years, using it as his own scryer or uh, seer stone for the things that he was doing and searching for treasure. Remember, and we have to be very, very clear on this, okay, this is all pre Golden Plates, Moroni, Joseph Smith did not translate the Book of Mormon by looking at the many pages of supposed golden plates and translate them by the gift and power of God or the interpreters that were found in the box that he said that were there. He did it. He translated the Book of Mormon by looking into a seer stone, the same seer stone he used to find treasure, buried treasure in and around his house. Joseph Smith also looked into a hat with the seer stone inside of it to dictate what the Book of Mormon was supposed to say. And Joseph Smith also received direct translation from heaven on what the Book of Mormon was to say without ever even looking at the seer stone into a hat or at plates. These few things need to be considered when we describe Joseph Smith's mystical training in these magical arts. First, what treasure do you think the Smiths were seeking when they were out there searching for treasure? Was it uh, money that was buried by families in the revolution, trying to escape it from being uh, taken by robbers or something? Or was it Indian treasure that was supposedly built? Lorenzo Sanders' report was that a group of men led by Joseph Jr. was digging on the northeast side of a hill in search of a hidden cave and that Joseph Smith said that he could see a man sitting in a golden chair. And that uh, the senior smith would add that the man was an old king from a native tribe who was shut up inside during one of the big battles. 
This was talk, spoken of to neighbors as the Smiths and others search for buried treasure prior to golden plates ever being mentioned. These stories of these ancient civilizations and sitting on thrones and kings being buried in hills and all this lore that was built up as they went and searched together. Does it sound familiar to you? Was treasure seeking an activity that prepared Joseph Smith to become the prophet of God, which Bushman says, he's an LDS writer, uh, Bushman says that all this magic and treasure seeking and scrying was a preparation for Joseph to become a prophet. Uh, I don't think so. In addition to scrying, primary historical documents have Joseph Jr. involved in a number of other magic and mystical practices before, during, and after the first vision and the announcements of the Golden Plates. These activities include uh, magical parchments with the, which the family maintained, uh, a dagger with symbolic powers to it. He even was found carrying a Jupiter talisman on him when he was shot. Did you know that, Latter-day Saints? That he had a talisman, which you can see pictures of it at utlm.org or in uh, Mormonism and the Magic World View, uh, Michael Quinn's book. You can see actual copies of this talisman, which was a thing that had all these symbolic writings on it that Joseph Smith carried with him as he was shot. What else can we say that he did? Quinn said Joseph Smith and his family believed in and used ritual mass, uh, magic, astrology, talismans, and magical parchments in their life. Brigham Young said in uh, Young's Office Journal, 30 December 1861, that an effort was made in the days of Joseph to establish astrology, not astronomy, astrology, very different. If we go down, Quinn also says, while the Smith family belief in astrology can be demonstrated only circumstantially and inferentially, the Smiths left direct evidence of their practice of ritual magic, which include daggers, parchments, and occult items like layman's. Okay? We can continue on. The reader will remember uh, that the testimony of Joseph Smith in the 1826 trial shows that he used a seer stone in his magical practices of seeking gold and lost items. Joseph Smith was actually taken to trial in Bainbridge, New York. He was convicted for doing this very thing in 1826, and it was this trial that made him say, I'm done with this. I have other things that I've got going on, like getting the golden plates and translating them into a religious record. And so he had a bad taste in his mouth for what he did. He still maintained all those magical icons and things, but he was done with it then. And then we can read that, he not only used the seer stone, but to all believers in Christ, we read from one of the uh, witnesses to the Book of Mormon, David Whitmer. I will now give you the description of the manner which the Book of Mormon was trans translated. Joseph Smith would put a seer stone into a hat and put his face into that hat, drawing it close around his face to exclude the light. And in the darkness, the spiritual light would shine. One character would appear at a time, and under it was the interpretation in English. Finally, B.H. Roberts, a noted uh, church historian, said that Joseph Smith used a seer stone uh, to translate the Book of Mormon. Do you ever hear about that in the church, Latter-day Saints? The most correct book on the face of this earth was translated by a seer stone found in a well with another magical family prior to any plates being discovered and that they used that same thing to find witchcraft. Oh, and finally, and this is a difficult one, but there is a lot of information on it. Animal sacrifices were part of the magic ritual which accompanied money digging. 
as they would go out, they wouldn't be able to find certain things. Treasures would be moved by demons under the earth and make them slippery, unable to obtain them. And so they would sacrifice a dog or a black sheep, pouring the blood in a circle to protect the treasure from being taken outside of it. This was a practice that is assigned to the smiths in several different reputable places. But I can't tell you, they're not... They're not definitive, but there's a lot of evidence for it. And maybe later on down the road in 10 years, we'll get more evidence to show that that is actually the case. Additionally, and in conclusion, before we open up the telephone lines at 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. When Joseph Smith uh, was receiving the gold plates or went to get them out of the ground, Oliver Cowdery, uh, who helped translate the Book of Mormon, said that the gold plates gave him a shock three times. The shock. This was all part of the culture of magic. That treasure in the earth, when you went to touch it, would shock you because you weren't ready or worthy to get it. And you didn't do all the exact right things to receive this treasure. That history from Oliver Cowdery comes straight from the practices of the occult. Additionally, returning to a place every year on the same day was a definite occult practice that was through all early 17th century, 16th century occult books on how you had to do these specific rites and rituals exactly to receive what you wanted. That returning on the exact same day, September 22nd, was very important. Additionally, September 22nd was the autumnal equinox. It was believed in occult practices that that was the time when the heavens would most closely reveal hidden treasures in the earth for humans to find that and use. That was the day that every single night Joseph Smith would return one year after the other to get those gold plates out of the earth. It's all tied in to the occult and magic practices of the time. It's a lot of information. You can always find more in those references I gave you. Let's go to Bob, first time caller in Boise on line two. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hello. Bob, you're on the show. Uh, hello, sir. Hello. Um, i like to tell you, I really like your show, and I kind of regret not being able to uh, talk to Sandra Tanner. I really look up to her, and uh, I saw it as a rerun. Anyway, to save time, my question is, uh, Solomon Spaulding, what do you think of that uh, theory, for lack of a better term, that Solomon Spaulding uh, wrote the Book of Mormon as a uh, novel? Yeah. <coughs> I think like with all the theories of where, uh, uh, what, how things happen with the Book of Mormon and its publication and the information they're in, I think there's some truth to it. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Joseph wasn't so ignorant as to go from one major source and build the whole thing. So he borrowed from the Bible. He borrowed from Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews. He borrowed from Solomon Spaulding. He borrowed from 19th century themes that were prevalent at the time. Right. So I think that it definitely played a part in the construction of the Book of Mormon. I just don't think it was uh, as prevalent as some people try to make it. Uh, that's what I was wondering. And is that Sandra Tanner's opinion? Because I never really read exactly what she uh about that. You know, I don't know what Sandra uh, Tanner's opinion is, but I'll tell you this. If her opinion differs, listen to her. She knows more. Okay. Uh, you know, I just wondered because I've heard some pretty convincing um, uh, statements about that, you know, that's where it, it originated from. So you're thinking it was, it, you're thinking it was like a hybrid type of... Uh, Definitely a hybrid book. 
Okay. And, and when we when we get Bob, when we get into the Book of Mormon, and uh, we're going to get into that real, pretty soon. We're going up to the first vision next, and then we're going to go into the Golden Plates and the Book of Mormon, and that is going to be a number of weeks just really breaking down all the things that came into play in building that book. People think that it just it's just impossible to show what it was, how it was created, and I think there is so many evidences to show uh, how he did it. Okay. Thank you for the call, man. Thank you. You take care, Bob. You too. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Goodbye. We're going to Dave. First time caller in Salt Lake. Dave, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how are you? Hey, Dave. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm, I, uh, this is kind of a follow-up call to my friend Scott a few weeks ago uh, about the post-Mormon freefall. And uh, we were oh. going to go to breakfast, and we still want to. There's like three, three oh. or four uh, lawyers. We're not Book of Mormon-type lawyers. But uh, we just want to get together and talk to you sometimes. Well, you could have called me on my, uh, you know, at the, you didn't have to call the live show to set this up, but let's do it. I, I would love to do it. I tell you what, I'll contact Scott and, uh, and let's set it up because I'd love to meet with you guys. Hey, Wednesdays are great for us, so try to do it if you can. <laughs> okay, we will. And, and, and I'll, uh, I promise you I'll call Scott and we'll reset that up. Hey, by the way, there doesn't need to be a, uh, a big fall into not believing anything after Mormonism. No, that's your position. We just, that's one of the things we want to talk about. All right, good. All right. I'll talk to you then, David. Cool, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. By the way, I met with a guy today who uh, I've known for a number of years, and uh, he's actively involved in the church. He teaches elders quorum, and uh, they allow him to teach the elders quorum. I think it was elders quorum or something like that. He absolutely doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in any of it. He's read through all this stuff. He's come to understand that there's so many problems with it. But he continues to go to the church because that's where his family goes. But he has no belief in deity. And it's amazing to me that he would continue to go and he still taught, teaches and he just, he's dead inside spiritually. That's a horrible position to be. Our purpose is try to get you to have Jesus be the relationship. And if you leave the church, fine, or whatever, but make him the relationship. And so he and I are going to have lunch too, and I'm going to fill this black jacket out better and better as these lunches continue to go. All right, we're going to Jordan, second time caller on line four. Jordan, you're on Heart of the Matter. All right. How you doing? Good. Um... I have a question about uh, genealogy with the LDS Church. Yeah. Um, on in First Timothy chapter four, it says, "Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith." So do. Yeah. Seems like uh, Timothy had some insight into people who. Uh, yeah. yeah. And there's also one in Titus, and it's. Um, chapter 3, verse 9, and it says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Yeah. You know, it's really important. I think your point's really good, but it's also important to understand the context of those. When they're saying it, what, those, what they were saying, where the Jews were saying, we're from Abraham, and David is our father, and let's have, let's have discussions and strifes over all this stuff. And not about the fact that you've been saved by grace by Jesus. That's the contextual understanding of those verses. I think it does apply to, to a church that spends so much time in, in genealogy and not on the living and not. But I think that if you're going to be fair on a, a contextual basis, that you have to say, well, um, 
it really did also mean the Jews who were taking their genealogy as being evidence that they were superior spiritually to everybody else. Oh, okay. But, um, but it still means that they shouldn't do it in the Mormon yeah. church? Well, I think it does. I can apply it that way. I agree with you. Okay, thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Okay, bye, Jordan. We have my daughter, Cassidy, has called again. I don't tell her to call. Cassidy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, what's going on? I have a question. Ooh, excellent. <laughs> or a question, actually. Yes. Um, okay. I'm confused as to why I was raised Mormon, uh-huh. and um, but now when I hear these things, I don't believe them. Like what things? Like the ma- like the seer stone. I, even though I was raised Mormon, I hear them and I don't believe them, but other people are raised Mormon and they believe, and they believe them or they say they do. So, what? Mm, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. And the only way that I can answer that honestly is to, uh, and I'm going to share with the audience quickly, Cassidy is 17 years old and she uh, has had a regenerative relationship with God and she's been born again and she knows that she has been forgiven for her sin by the grace of God. And so, Cassidy, the scriptures talk about being blind and deaf, and that the natural person cannot understand the things of God. And so, therefore, if you have natural eyes, you will see what you want to see and hear what you want to hear. But when you've been born again and the truth is presented to you, your ears and eyes hear the truth through it and you can see. And so I believe the reason that you don't believe those things anymore has a lot to do with the fact that you've been born again. Now, critics of mine would say the reason that you don't believe in it is because your father has gone the opposite way and you love me so much that you want to uh, please me. But I think you know in our relationship that I drive you to the LDS church if you want to go and let you hang out with Mormon friends anytime you want. Whatever it is, you can believe what you want to believe. And I, don't, I, don't, I hope I don't throw it down your throat. But I think that the real answer is the fact that your eyes have been opened. Okay. Does that help? Yes, it does. Very uh, much. I love you so much, my girl. I love you too. I'll You're, see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye-bye. That girl's a searcher. Uh, she's always asking these questions. I love it. I hope you're a searcher too. I hope your children will come to you and say, Mom, Dad, what about this? And I hope it opens your heart to say, What about this? You know, let's find the truth. Okay, uh, let's see. We're going to an email. <coughs> Excuse me. The email is. I'm sorry for the delay. You, uh, I get this email from this young man all the time that I am a deceptor, that I uh, slither into Latter-day Saints' hearts, I look for the weak, and that I try to deceive them, so take them out of Heavenly Father's hand. And uh, he says that I need to teach people to read and study instead of listen to me. And I, uh, I have to tell you that I hope I've gotten the message across that you should search all these things out for yourself, that you should search the scriptures endlessly, that you should go to the Lord, that you should ask for forgiveness, you should ask Him to take over your life, and don't believe a word I say. Just take what I've said and see if it's right or wrong. That's all I ask you to do. So if you feel like I'm force-feeding you some stuff, I'm sorry, I I'm really try not to. I try to present it as I see it. I try to be fair, and you can assimilate it from there. We're going to Wanda's first-time caller from Provo. Wanda, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I've been watching you for a couple weeks now. Yeah. I am LDS. 
uh, I grew up a born again Christian. Oh wow, you're a you're a flipper. I'm a flipper. You're a flipper of me. Uh, I am. Question is, doesn't the, didn't the Bible when I was a born again Christian teach that there would be prophets? That there would be prophets? Yeah. Sure. There's prophets. Okay. Yeah. Yet, but yet when I joined the LDS Church and I started following it. I have questions about the prophets I'm following. Yeah. Well, when the Bible, Wanda, talks about prophets, it's talking about people with the gift of prophecy, like the gift of healings, like the gift of tongues, like the, any of the spiritual gifts, prophecy is one of those. And if someone has the gift of prophecy, they may share something that is of the Lord, and, uh, and that's just how a spiritual gift works. I don't have it, so I don't really know. I've heard people say they have it. Sometimes you have to be careful. The difference between that and what the LDS say and Gordon B. Hinckley being a prophet, seer, and revelator is that they are saying he's just like Moses. And we know that according to the New Testament that the law and the prophets were fulfilled in Jesus and that there's no need for a prophet to continually lead and guide the church like Moses did the children of Israel when the Holy Spirit came and it was given to anyone who believed. Because that Holy Spirit is what guides the believers, and that's how God can have a church that's spread out all over the world of believers who come up, and by their faith, they have the Holy Spirit with them, and He guides them that way. The, the need for a prophet like unto Moses was done away with, and this is a misapplication of the term uh, in the Mormon church. Okay. Does that help? Uh, yeah, I just, I just, I knew, when I, when I first started going, and they were having a prophet, I thought, well, this is great, because the Bible said... But there will be prophets, and sure. now, ever since I've joined the church, I've had health problems. And I asked my husband if it's because maybe I'm not doing what I was doing before. Well, what were you doing before? Well, I'm born again Christian. And what is that? What did that mean to you when you were a born again Christian? Jesus lived and died so I could live. And did it mean you're saved by I grace? Saved before I didn't. I didn't have to become an LDS to be saved, but they made me feel like I had to do more. You know, uh, Wanda, you had the truth in knowing that you were saved by grace when you were a born-again Christian. And I would just strongly suggest living there in Provo. There's a good church called Christ Evangelical Church there. And there's some very good people who are coming out or out of Mormonism who can share with you those basic essentials of what it is to be saved by grace and to have the peace and freedom of that and then the drive to do what Jesus wants you to do in your life instead of by rules and fear and, and get to the temple and be sealed and all those things that go along with an extra uh, biblical religion. Okay, well, what's the name of the church again? The name of it is a Christ Evangelical Church. It's Pastor um, Scott McKinney. And uh, in fact, listen, Wanda, on March 7th, we're going to be there at a, a Heart in the Church. Come to that if you don't go before, and hopefully we can see and talk to you. I'd love to. Okay. All right. So call them, Christ Evangelical Church, Scott McKinney. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye, Wanda. Bye. We're going to Raymond, first-time caller from Leighton. <coughs> Raymond, you're in Heart of the Matter. <coughs> I, just, I just have a question for you. Okay. I just have, hopefully, an answer. Okay, hey, uh, I was watching your show, I was just wondering, uh, when did Joseph Smith start m playing with magic? They don't know exactly when, but they think in 1820, uh, which was about the same time that he had the first vision, and, uh, and about the same time that the family, close to the same time, the family moved into Palmyra, the whole thing happened, right? That's what they think. 
because many years later, Joseph Smith's father said, I've been practicing scrying, that means looking at a stone, for 30 years, and he said it like around 1850 or something like that, if I've got my facts on that correct. Who did he say this to? Who did who say what to? Who did, who did the father say that to? Uh, you know what? If you email me, I'll, t I'll tell you. I have it. I just pulling that off the top of my head. I remember he made a reference that I've been scrying for years, and I can give that to you. Okay. And then I have another question. Yes. Uh, how, uh, how um, In the Book of Mormon, there's a lot of references to places in South America. And I was just wondering uh, what, I mean, like, how, what happened to the Mayans? <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know what happened to the Mayans. I don't know that the Book of Mormon talks about anywhere in South America, but I know the Mormon Church has led you to believe that was all in South America at one time or another. They're changing that now, and now it's a really small area that no one can find that they're saying the whole thing took place. All this stuff is being revised as they go along, but... Um, as we study the Book of Mormon, maybe we'll be able to get more into that topic of exact locations and the whole Mayan thing. But Mayans had nothing to do with, uh, with the Lamanites and the Nephites of the Book of Mormon. Oh, really? Yeah, I hope that helps. Okay. All right, Raymond, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Tyler, first-time caller from Ogden, Utah. Tyler, you're on Heart of the Matter. Tyler? Oh, I'm here, yes. Yeah, you're on the air. Uh, my name is Tyler. I come from down under. Sorry, my accent is a little bit broken here. I apologize for that. I've been, I've been ill. And... It's okay! <laughs> I just had a very quick question for you, sir. Um, you were saying that a couple of shows ago, uh, question, the person came to your show and he asked, how can you tell the proof between how the Mormon church is true and how, the, and how you can tell how the churches are true through scientific study and different things like that, you see, because I have several friends who are Catholic and several friends who are Protestant, and they're saying that the, how can you tell that the Mormon Church is true through study? Right. And do you want me to kind of refresh what we talked about when we talked about epistemology? Well, you, you're saying that it, uh, there was a... He said that, you know, the Mormon church is saying that there's falsehood, that they're liars, and, that they're, and the gentleman said that they were con artists, but how, how can you truly tell which church is really true when there is, when there is evidence truly in front of you showing that one church is true and another church is true, but how can you tell that the Mormon church is not true in a way when you've got the, kind of the proof okay. in, in the Book of Mormon itself? Okay, two things. One is you can't prove a negative when it comes to logic. You cannot prove that something does not exist. So I can't prove that Santa Claus does not exist. It's impossible. I can say all kinds of things. I can take ex, uh, explorations to the South Pole and examine it, North Pole and examine it, and, and say there's no evidence. But someone else could say, yeah, but he was hiding under a little piece of snow up there, and you just didn't see. So it's impossible to prove a negative when it comes to logic. So when it comes to proving a church is true or not, it's, you're not going to be able to do it. What you have to do is, what does the Bible say? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one truth. There is no church that is true. There is Jesus who is true. Now, you're going to have churches pop all over and all kinds of men pop up and say, I'm the prophet and follow me and I'm this and that. 
But you have to tap into what the Bible says is true, and that's only one thing, him. So when you have someone saying this Book of Mormon's true, Joseph Smith knew you can't prove a, 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 a negative. He knew it because he spent his life proving to people he could see treasure, and he knew there was no way in the world that they could prove him wrong. There was nothing they could say that could say you're not seeing what you're seeing. So you're going, to, you're going down a, a very, um, it's going to take some time and some real thought-provoking stuff, but watch our show on epistemology. I think it was last week or the week before, and it talks about knowing versus believing and hope and what the Bible says about it versus what the church tries to tell you. And what the church says is not right. If I, if I, I understand your saying, and I agree with you on, on, to that, on what you told me, to, to an extent, you know, I, I, I was born and I've been raised Mormon. I've, I've gone through all my life, and 20 years old, I've seen, you know, I've seen it, and I've, I've listened to it, and, I, and I've really understood it, understand what they've taught me, and, and everything and else. But um, if I may, there's this one thing that really got my mind when you were telling me that, that really got me to, is, um, you said to look at the Bible and see, and, and take a look to a gentleman a couple of week, days ago, and the one scripture that truly got me was the same one that Joseph Smith read himself. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And, you know, I, I've done that, and I've had my witness, but there's still just one question that, re that still really gets me. Um, you're saying that Joseph Smith, you said that you can't prove that Santa Claus is right is not real or but cannot be fake right um but is there tr but is it possible that joseph smith could have seen the things he's seen and possibly that he could have heard the things he's heard even though there is truly no physical evidence that it proves it just words written in a book saying that he saw what he saw or heard what he heard and yeah. testifies what he testifies. Yeah, it's possible. I don't discount the fact that he says he sees what he sees and saw what he saw. I, I can't, I'm not going to spend my time saying whether he did or didn't. There's people who think he really did see something. They don't know what originated that thing that he saw. But this, there's people who think he sees something. There's people who think he was a con man. I don't, it doesn't matter whether he really saw something or not. What matters is what's the end product say relative to what God has said in the word. And they are completely different things. So when you have that problem come up, then you, then you have to say something's wrong. You know, I would love to talk to you more, one, because your accent is beautiful. I love it. And also because you're a smart guy, email me. I'd love to send you the book uh, for free and just let us get it to you. And then you can, of course, go on with your ways. But I, we got to keep moving with other calls. But thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much, sir. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. And God bless you and your family. And I will continue watching your show. Thank you. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. What a great call. What a nice guy. There's something about that accent that just, I mean, they just sound so lovely. I love it. Um, all right, we're going to line uh, two, Richard in Bountiful. Richard, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. I don't got my Bible in front of me, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Yes. Talks about how in the early days God talked to us through prophets. In the last days he talked to us through Jesus Christ. Yes. And so my question is, do you believe that we're in the last days? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I believe those verses very true in Hebrews. And uh, my other question is, is uh, like, uh, I think it's in Timothy somewhere where it talks about um, the seven brothers that has uh, 
each of them died, and none of them had kids, and they all married the lady. That was in the Gospels of uh, Luke and, and probably Matthew and Mark, and it was the Pharisees trying to trip up Jesus, but go ahead. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, how they say they, they get married and they get... Uh, who is married to him? Who is married to her when it's all said and done, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what's your what's your question? Is uh, doesn't that prove that they can't be married in heaven or sealed to them after the resurrection? Yeah, it's really interesting you bring that up because I'm really doing a, a an in-depth study on polygamy, and there were two passages of scripture that seemed to greatly affect Joseph's idea of of polygamy and why it was important one was abrahamic covenant where where uh abraham was promised by god that he would have a seed beyond the sea uh, the seashore sand and the stars and also the very passage that you're talking about where joseph said if they can't be married in heaven then they have to marry as much as possible while they're on earth that was his reasoning behind it and those two scriptures made him think boom Polygamy has to be a very important thing we have to practice so that you can have the sands of the sea of offspring and because you're not going to be able to have a chance to be married after this life. Just a little side note there. Sorry. Well, that's about all I have, so I was Well, I appreciate it, Richard. Right. You take care. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Talon. <coughs> First time caller on line three. Talon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, yeah, me this time. Um... I'm a LDS uh, student in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and um, I just want to first let you know that uh, I respect your show and respect you for giving me this opportunity. Um, my comment has to do with, uh, and I've got a question also to follow up with it, but um, I was watching an earlier broadcast where you were talking a lot about testimony yeah, and about how LDS people say a lot that they know something. You know, they know the church is true. They know Joseph Smith's a prophet and how... Um, Christians can have a hard problem with that because how can we know anything, you know, uh -huh. beyond ourselves? And so my comment goes that, you know, with somebody that believes in God, I mean, you and me, we, we know that God is, or we believe in God, and so God is the only person that can actually know anything. So that if God being real, um, I want to make sure to word this right, but if God being real, you know, what we well, we think you, you're gonna have, you brought up this thing about uh, how there was a man that had a cup in front of him and he couldn't prove if the cup in front of him was real or not. Right. And he couldn't he didn't know for sure if it was real, even though it was sitting right in front of him. Right. Um, this world was all created by God, and everything that we have, I mean, anything that I put in front of me, in actuality, isn't real. God is the only thing that is real. All this now is temporary. Okay. Everything goes the way of the earth when it's done, you know? Okay. Well, everything that we are looking at with our senses really is the things that are fake. And the things that, the, that people believe may be fake, which is God, is in reality the things that are real. Well, that sounds very Eastern metaphysics. Well, so if we are to receive any, any knowledge of truth, it has to be divinely given from us. Okay. The only source which could find something to be truth, which is God. Okay. So my comment, first of all, is how LDS people can come up and say they know the church is true. Right. It's not like they've seen and experienced it in this world of illusions that they think, you know, like as you are talking about Joe Smith at this time and how he was a glass looker and uh, right. looked in the seeing stones and how he translated the Book of Mormon through that and stuff like that. Right. You know, I mean, anybody can make any comments in the world of how the world looks at whether or not Joseph Smith is a true prophet. Right. But when it all comes down to it in reality is if God has given a divine answer to solve the equation. Because, I mean, in the scriptures, 
the most repeated phrase over and over throughout the Bible and as well in the Book of Mormon is asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be given unto you. You know, the Lord is implying that if we are to receive an answer, it comes from God. Talent, I'm gonna, uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but... Okay, uh, but, my question to you is if Christ did have a church on the earth today, do you feel that there would be the most devout people on the earth? Do you feel there would be devout Christian standards, everything else? Uh, if Christ actually had a physical church that, you know, like a building that was yeah, his church? If he had believers, yeah, if he had actual believers that believed, you know, yes. I guess you would say a church, yeah. Yes, I think they would be the most... Would stand dev- out more so than any other Christian. Yes, I, more than any other any other churches, they would be the most devout, yes. And so on this church, on this earth today, who would you say, which organization? Not the Mormons. Not the Mormons? No, I would say it's the individual devout believers the millions who have died by virtue of being martyrs, the people who praise Jesus and live for him every day of their life instead of just on Sundays and in their meetings and things. These are people who are devout, loving. I I met with a woman today who's watching her son die, who sat there and prayed for me. These people are selfless, true Christians, and there is nothing like them on earth. And the Mormon church, as far as the qualitative experience that they produce, has no comparison except for those specific Mormons who have been born again and follow Jesus. But you have to understand, as far as a church goes, there's no way they compare to the body of believers that uh, Christ has called to be his. Okay, Talon, we got to keep going, brother. Thanks you for the call. We have one minute left. (coughs) All right, we're going to Glenn. Glenn, first-time caller. Glenn, you literally have 20 seconds. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Go, you're on. Glenn? Yes. You're, you're on the air, on? man. You've got 15 seconds, buddy. buddy. Okay. You got to go. Okay, yeah. I'm ready. Okay, go. Sean? Yes. This is Glenn? Yes. Uh, yeah, my name is Glenn Reese. I'm from Boise, Idaho. Hey, Glenn. Um, uh, my little sister and I, I, I actually have five sisters, but my littlest sister and I, are both uh, ex-Mormon. We grew up in the same family, of course, and uh, uh, had the same upbringing. Glenn! Um, Glenn, yes. you have to call back next week because we have 15 seconds for the show, man. I, you got to okay. call back. I'm sorry. Okay. All right, thank you. God bless you. All right, I'm sorry. Uh, tune in next week to Heart of the Matter. We're going to start to get into the first vision. You're, you're going to really want to tune into this. Thank you for tuning in. Micah, God bless you.